Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Google's DeepMind has developed an artificial intelligence algorithm that can predict the structure of proteins, and the company is making the data openly available to scientists around the world. What may spring from this monumental step change? Hello and welcome to Babbage, The Economist's weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Couquier. Also coming up on today's show, can wearable technology help scientists and doctors understand and track long COVID patients? It really gives us a better ability to track people continuously over a much longer period of time rather than just these single visits to your healthcare provider where you might get your blood pressure and your heart rate checked. And the secret behind the success of songbirds. If they could detect sugar, they'd be able to more easily identify the most nutritious and valuable foods, and therefore they'd have a better chance of surviving. And this adds weight to the idea that developing this ability may have been instrumental to their remarkable evolutionary success. But first... Proteins are responsible for just about every biological process on Earth, from how plants and animals and humans live to the nature of disease. Proteins are made up of around 20 amino acids. Each protein is a chain of perhaps fewer than 100 or perhaps tens of thousands of these amino acids. But the sequence of these amino acids is only a part of the protein's magic. The way the protein behaves is very much determined by its structure or its shape. How that chain of amino acids fold. Scientists have been trying to map protein shapes for decades. The information may lead to better antibiotics, frost-resistant plants, and new properties in materials. The sequence of around 200 million proteins is known, but the shape has been identified in fewer than 200,000 of them. It's done experimentally, using tools like X-ray crystallography, where proteins are crystallized and then observed through an X-ray. The process is very difficult and time-consuming. It can take researchers the entire duration of their PhDs to figure out the shape of just one protein. In 2019 on Babbage, I spoke to Demis Hassabis, the chief executive and co-founder of DeepMind, an artificial intelligence company owned by Google, about how AI might be used in proteomics, the science of proteins. We're applying it to problems like protein folding, where it's finding the 3D structure of a protein that governs its function. And there are millions of ways these proteins can fold, you know, and the, the kind of structure they can fold into. That is the kind of problem, I think, that is amenable to this kind of process. 
Today, just two years on, DeepMind has made a major breakthrough. DeepMind has announced that it's used its artificial intelligence program, which understands or seeks to understand the folding up of proteins to predict the structures of about 350,000 proteins, including the vast majority of those that are found in the human genome. Oliver Morton is a senior editor at The Economist. A protein is, at one level, just a very long string of different amino acids. You can imagine it as a paper chain at a child's party in which all the links have one of 20 different colours. The secret of folding is that some of the colours like to nestle next to each other and some of the colours actively dislike each other. And the folding up of the protein is a sort of like sampling of everybody's preferences until you get to this minimum energy state where everyone's kind of okay. And then you have the shape of the protein and then the protein can go off and recognise viruses or be part of a muscle fibre or um, be part of one of your synapses or whatever that protein is destined for. And how do DeepMind predict all these protein shapes? What DeepMind have done is look at both existing databases of the structure of proteins, of how they fold, and also vast, much larger databases of protein sequence to see when one link in the paper chain changes colour in a protein through evolution, what other changes happen or seem to have to happen nearby. And it uses those two sorts of information to arrive at rough structures. And then it goes back through the process and says, well, if this is true, then what else is true? And it passes this all through a neural network a number of times, then eventually comes out with a prediction as to where all the atoms and all the amino acids actually are. And it also um, grades how confident it is about not just the prediction for the protein structure overall, but which bits of it it thinks it's really nailed and which bits of it it's saying, yeah, okay, this could be a bit dodgy. DeepMind partnered with the European Molecular Biology Laboratory to release their 350,000 protein predictions online for free. That means anyone in the scientific community can access them. I asked Catherine Tanya Suvanikon, a research scientist at DeepMind and the lead author of its recent work on the human proteome, to explain what this is. After all, it sounds a bit like the human genome. Just as the genome is all of the genes in a particular organism, the proteome is all of the proteins that are expressed by a particular organism. So in the case of human, that's just over 20,000 of them. And we've essentially predicted all of their structures. So that's what the paper is about. So you've mapped 98.5% of the human proteome, and 58% of the predictions are confident enough to be useful in biology. But how do you see the data being used? Okay, so in terms of the utility of the predictions, mostly um, my thinking about that revolves around collaborations that we've already done. One of them that I'm really excited about is um, work at Portsmouth with the Center for Enzyme Innovation. They are mining sequence databases, essentially looking for enzymes that can break down plastics. And they had identified seven families of these enzymes, but didn't necessarily know anything about their structure yet. And so we were sent seven representative sequences to predict with AlphaFold. And since then, we've had feedback that these have been tremendously useful in terms of being able to plan their future experiments. So, for example, you don't necessarily just want to use these enzymes as they are. You might want to tweak their properties a bit, try and improve them. And this allows them to plan targeted mutations to try and do that and also understand the differences between these different families that they've found. Now, all of these are the positive uses of the protein database. 
Of course, there's the possibility that someone could tweak it for nefarious purposes. What do you say to that, to critics who really pull their chin and worry about it? We take ethical considerations like that very seriously at DeepMind, and that's actually something that we've discussed at length with our own ethics committee internally, and also with external experts. And what we found essentially is that there are already many, many experimental structures in the protein data bank of things that at first glance you might think would be quite dangerous. Um, So for instance, pandemic influenza. And really that reflects a scientific consensus that knowing these structures is more helpful for trying to cure disease and for trying to avoid these problems than it is useful for dual use purposes. We're working with that scientific consensus. You've released around 300,000 proteins, the shapes of them now, and you plan by the end of the year to have 100 million released. That's a big number. How long does it take to find the shape using your algorithm? In terms of how fast it is now, I suppose for a typical protein, you'd be looking at a minute or so, minutes perhaps. For very, very long proteins, because the scales with the length, you might be looking at hours. But it is overall a very fast technique. And um, for doing whole proteomes, you know, we could do that in 24 hours, say, for an entire proteome would be quite reasonable. As for scaling up, I think that is one area where, you know, Google Scale Compute might help with uh, doing something on the order of 100 million proteins, right? Uh, But that's one of the reasons that it's going to be so helpful for us to put that out there so then people can use that data. Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about your research. All right. Thank you. Now, Ali, all of this sounds really interesting as a new tool for biology. Where do you expect this to go? How is this going to be used? Well, it's going to be used by everyone who's trying to find protein structures, or most people. It's not going to be the only thing they use. Remember, these are predictions. And if you were actually going to try and, for instance, validate a protein as a drug target, say, I want to design a drug that fits into this little bit of a protein and gums it up or turns it on, you were obviously going to do lots of other structural stuff as well. Then further out, I think one of the really interesting things is that by understanding the structures of proteins better, it's going to be possible to tweak them better and maybe even come up with entirely new proteins with which nature has not seen fit to provide us. And those are some of the really exciting things. Now, there are already people tweaking proteins and using AI to do so. But I'm sure this is going to open up that field more and, I imagine, make it more effective on many different levels. Now, one question is the reliability of the algorithm, because as you pointed out, this is simply a prediction. Is that going to be good enough? Well, it's not going to be good enough if you don't behave like a sensible womble and, you know, decide to just say that the first answer you get is the right one. It's going to be good enough if you're a smart researcher trying to work out what's actually going on and you have this very good new way of seeing into protein structures. It doesn't make every other way redundant, but it does definitely provide a powerful new tool. And it's also pretty quick. So in terms of having a first look that's also a really good look, um, I think that it's got a got a lot going for it. Ali, it is clear that this is a huge accomplishment that will open the door to new advances in biology. But I have to wonder the degree to which this is a true landmark moment in science. Help me understand this. For instance, in the Economist's annual supplement, The World If, and our podcast, The World Ahead, we recently speculated whether an AI system might ever win a Nobel Prize. So let me ask, albeit a little bit indiscreetly, is this the sort of stuff that wins a Nobel Prize? Yeah, well, that that was a lovely speculation by our colleague. This isn't like that. This is not going to decide what proteins to look at. 
it's just going to look at proteins. I think what's really interesting about this is that this is a very competitive field of science. And that's driven this field forward, that sense of competition. And this is now very much, you know, sort of like head and shoulders above the others. And it's shown that you can take a team that's both very good at biology and very good at AI and really come out with something quite outstanding, something that's significantly above some of the very good academic work that's being done. And they've taken a big issue that's a real scientific issue and really made a dent in it. They haven't retired the field, but they really made a dent in it. And I'm very excited both for what people will go on to do in the area of protein biology with this, but also in the question of whether DeepMind can find other scientific areas where they can marry a really intimate understanding of how the science works with their work on AI in order to make some similar sort of breakthrough. And that seems to me the big message here. It's a big day for structural biology, but I think in terms of its real application to scientific analysis, it's a big day for AI as well. I completely agree. It's a beautiful day for AI and it's a beautiful day for biology. And a fine day for podcasting too, Ken. It is. It's a great day. (laughs) Oliver, thank you very much. Very nice to be with you, Ken. And it is a beautiful day to take out a subscription to The Economist. This week, we start our latest Schools Brief series, a regular summer feature that helps you get smart fast on big issues. This summer, we explore biology. And in the first article, you can read about how proteins work. Find the Schools Brief series on biology and so much more in The Economist. Head to economist.com slash podcast offer for your best introductory offer. And don't forget to tell them, oh, never mind, just subscribe. Thanks. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. As the pandemic rages on, so does the plight of long haulers with chronic symptoms of COVID-19. Doctors have not yet agreed on a definition of long COVID. Some use it to describe symptoms lasting at least four weeks, others for six months or more. The emerging evidence suggests that around 15% of people with COVID-19 go on to experience long-term symptoms. Researchers at University College London recently found that long COVID has more than 200 symptoms affecting 10 organ systems. Those symptoms may include everything from muscle aches to reduced lung capacity to brain fog. Because of the lack of long-term data, this is a new condition after all, epidemiologists are desperately trying to track patients to observe the effects that COVID-19 has on them. 
One idea is to use wearables, things like fitness trackers or smartwatches, to gather real-time data on patients as they pass from the acute phase of COVID-19 to recovery or for some longer-term symptoms. Wearables are really great at better characterizing what's normal for each individual. Dr. Jennifer Radin is an epidemiologist at the Scripps Research Translational Institute in California. We know from prior research that each person really has a unique resting heart rate that is specific to them. But if you have a wearable, you can really figure out what's unique and normal for yourself. And when you get that information, then you can identify these more subtle changes that may indicate something is impacting your health, such as a viral infection. And it really gives us a better ability to track people continuously over a much longer period of time rather than just these single visits to your healthcare provider where you might get your blood pressure and your heart rate checked. Tell me about your research project. So our study is called DETECT. DETECT is a research platform, a research app where participants from all over the United States can download our app, which is called My Data Helps, and they can share their wearable data, metrics such as sleep and activity and heart rate from a wide range of devices, pretty much anything that connects to Apple HealthKit or Google Fit. And also they can share any symptoms they might develop if they get sick any diagnostic tests they might get if they go to their healthcare provider someplace to get tested for COVID or flu. And they also can report vaccination and even connect to their electronic health records. And so this broader study allows us to better understand kind of the individual changes that are associated with a viral infection and also use that data for early detection of viral illnesses a lot faster and be able to zoom in and identify where those are. So what was your study specifically? So this specific study tracked people who reported into our research app that they had some sort of symptoms and had received a COVID test. And so we grouped people into those individuals who are COVID positive versus those who are COVID negative. And we tracked their sensor data for many months after their symptom onset. And what was really interesting is that we found that on average, it took people who had COVID about two to three months for their resting heart rate to come back to their baseline. And their baseline was calculated as their average prior to getting sick. And so this is really interesting because it allows us to objectively quantify people's response to a viral infection. And um, one other really interesting thing we found is that individuals had a lot of variation from person to person. So some people return to their baseline a lot quicker. And then a small subset of individuals had this elevated resting heart rate that stayed elevated for much longer. And so we think this group may represent the group that has long COVID and that is experiencing some sort of ongoing inflammation or dysfunction of their autonomic nervous system. So how confident can you be that the share of people with these dramatic changes are the same patients that will experience lasting symptoms like long COVID? That was one limitation of our study, is that we only collected symptom information from participants during the acute phase of their viral illness, which is kind of the early phase when they were sick, right after symptom onset. We didn't want to burden participants with too many continued um, questions. So we did not collect the long-term, say six months down the road, are you still experiencing symptoms? And that's one thing that we're hoping to add into our research 
platform so we can better understand that going forward to see how the physiological changes that we are seeing with this sensor data, how they relate to kind of symptom data that participants are experiencing. Right now, we have over 38,000 participants from all over the United States, and our goal is really to grow this number to hundreds of thousands of people, and we are still recruiting participants. And the reliability of wearables, how good is it? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's been prior studies that have shown that they do a really good job of measuring heart rate, especially when people are resting and not active running around. There are some differences from device to device on how resting heart rate is calculated. And for this particular sub-study, we only looked at Fitbit users just to get around those differences from device to device. And because we had majority of our participants were Fitbit users. So what kind of symptoms could these heart rate changes cause? Elevated resting heart rate changes may be caused by ongoing inflammation. For example, many COVID patients develop myocarditis, which is inflammation of their heart. And also many patients go on to develop dysfunction of their autonomic nervous system. So we saw a lot of increase in the resting heart rate during the acute phase and then resting heart rate actually kind of dipped a little and then stayed elevated for several months. And we think this variation may indicate, again, the dysfunction of autonomic nervous system, which regulates your heart rate. And how relevant is this beyond COVID-19? Could wearables provide uses in defining other long-term illnesses? Yeah, there are a number of different studies out there right now looking at how wearables can better track, say, pregnancy changes. Our group at Scripps has a study called Power Mom, where they're trying to better understand individualized response to ongoing pregnancy and what's kind of normal for each person. Um, There's also studies looking at things like asthma or diabetes, and wearables really do a good job of better understanding what each person's typical baseline is, and then deviations from that baseline may help us indicate or catch early onset of different either chronic or acute illnesses. Dr. Aiden, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. the dawn chorus. Delightful and familiar to all you early birds, and a novelty to all us night owls. From the nightingale to the wren to the humble blackbird. Songbirds are incredible in their variety and virtuosity. Indeed, it's hard to imagine a world without them. But such a sad, silent world could well have been ours had it not been for a tiny genetic change some 30 million years ago. Songbirds, or passeri to give them their proper name, are incredibly successful in evolutionary terms. In fact, they're so successful that they make up almost half of all bird species alive today. Sona Poppet writes about science for The Economist. Scientists still aren't completely sure why the passeri are so successful, but one crucial clue could lie in their diets. To take it right back to the beginning, all birds evolved from carnivorous dinosaurs called theropods. 
These were meat eaters, so detecting sugar wasn't important to their success. Genetic analyses of modern birds suggest that their ancestors completely lost the ability to taste sweetness as a result. But when it comes to the passeri, their origins made the ability to detect sugar a more valuable trait. Intriguing. Why is that? Where did songbirds come from? The passeri originated in Australia around 30 million years ago. There, sugar-rich plants such as eucalypts were abundant and offered a new potential food source to the early songbirds. If they could detect sugar, they'd be able to more easily identify the most nutritious and valuable foods, and therefore they'd have a better chance of surviving. Two scientists have been investigating this hypothesis, Toda Yasuka of Tokyo University and Maud Baldwin of the Max Planck Institute in Germany. They've just published a new piece of research that shows that songbirds can indeed perceive sweetness, so they must have re-evolved this ability. And this adds weight to the idea that developing this ability may have been instrumental to their remarkable evolutionary success. So how does that work? How do animals taste sweetness? In general, vertebrates' taste receptor genes normally include three that encode proteins, and those are called T1R1, T1R2, and T1R3. It's a real catchy term. The scientists were like branding experts. (laughs) For sure. The taste receptors themselves are formed from pairs of those proteins. So, for example, the receptor for sweetness is formed when T1R2 and T1R3 bind together. However, birds don't have the gene for T1R2, so they can't form the sweet receptor. They're missing half of it. And presumably that gene was lost by their theropod ancestors. So if they don't have that gene, how do they taste sweetness? So Dr. Toda and Dr. Baldwin did an earlier study in hummingbirds, which are not in the passerine, but they can still taste sugar. They found that the hummingbirds gained their ability to taste sugar by mutating the remaining taste receptor genes, T1R1 and T1R3. That normally makes up a receptor that allows them to taste savoury or umami flavours. And so they thought, does this also happen in songbirds? Let's find out. So they cloned T1R1 and T1R3 receptors from a variety of songbirds and found that they could all strongly interact with sugar molecules. And this confirmed that, as with the hummingbirds, songbirds regained perception of sweetness via mutations in those genes. Does this apply across all bird species? Not at all. The same T1R1 and T1R3 receptors were also cloned from birds in the tyranny, which is a sister group to the passeri. And those receptors couldn't interact with the sugars, but they could interact really strongly with amino acids, which are typical of those savoury or umami flavours found in meat. And so that's an inheritance from their carnivorous dinosaur ancestors. The mutations in the songbird lineage that allow sugar perception therefore must have happened after the passeri and the tyranny lines diverged, but before the passeri themselves began proliferating into the wide variety of songbirds that we know today. Is it thanks to this evolution of an avian sweet tooth that there's such an incredible variety of songbirds? Yes, it most likely played a role, though other characteristics such as seed-eating adaptations and perching ability could also have been involved. But the ability to recognise sweet things as edible and nutritious will have definitely opened up new ecological niches for songbirds to enter, particularly as they spread out of Australia and entered new environments with new food sources, such as nectar and fruits. And this resulted in the passeries' current diversity. And do humans also have this genetic mutation to thank for the tuneful song sung by many in the passeri group? That we don't know yet. It's unclear how it all ties up, and it may just be a coincidence, but it's certainly a fortunate one for those who enjoy listening to birdsong. 
Have the scientists also considered studying this in humans? Could the fact that humans taste sweet and savory things at different intensities explain something about our own abilities to sing or to exercise or to be incredibly good podcast hosts? I mean, possibly. I mean, it's been posed that maybe birds taste sweet and savory things as exactly the same because the same receptors being used to detect it and the same pathways being used. So whilst we taste a sweet and soy sauce is completely different, they might think it's all the same. And that's another interesting question. Sona Poppet, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. And thank you for listening to Babbage. While you're with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The producers are Jason Hoskin, Abby Soye Oshindairo, and Amika Shortito Nolan. Nico Rofast is the sound engineer, and the editor is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Kenneth Kukie, and in London, this is The Economist. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.